We care about our land more than somebody down in Ottawa. A land code puts the First Nation into the power of government. The biggest point for me is your ability to protect your reserves lands. Former chief of our community had the vision to sign uh, and the guts to sign that framework agreement. Business at the pace of business. I think it just proves that First Nations lands management really is working. The good thing about land code, we don't have to sell it. It sells itself. Robert Louis has accomplished a lot over his career. Lawyer, Chief of West Bank First Nation, Order of Canada recipient, along with dozens of other accolades for his steadfast pursuit of Indigenous self-government and economic opportunities. He is a pioneer of the land code movement, now celebrating more than 100 communities that have voted to take control of their lands and resources. How has he stayed true to the course? Well, as I learned in our conversation, two childhood events involving his grandmother might have inspired him. Here's my talk with Robert Louis. Robert, great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. Nice to be back, and uh, and uh, the best of the of the of the season to all the viewers and listeners. Speaking of listeners, I, I want to credit your staff too with helping promote this podcast called Land Decolonized because it's done very well in the Apple rankings, and there seems to be some appetite for learning more about this. Uh, progress towards self-government so kudos to you and your staff yes thank you very much we've uh, we've been working hard on it it must be pretty exciting it is super exciting uh actually we uh, reached this past weekend 101 oh fantastic so, oh yes oh yes so when we uh, reached the uh, the 100 a few weeks prior to that uh, you know this is absolutely a milestone uh pinnacle in history and we're very very pleased with that achievement now, when you go back to your days as a young lawyer, back in the mid-90s, late-90s, when you first started looking into this, did you have any idea or any notion that this could become, this land code movement could become what it is today? As far as, uh, as, far as our uh, 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 viewpoints uh, in, in, in that time and that era, you know, we, uh, we knew that uh, we wanted to uh, have recognition of lawmaking authorities. We wanted to be recognized as government. So the vision was very clear. Myself, the, uh, the chiefs in Canada at the time that were participating in land management, we knew this is what we wanted. This is what our people wanted. And that was our future. How far it would go, I guess this was uh, anybody's uh, dream. Um, we had hoped that uh, First Nations would uh, take up this option to uh, move ahead with uh, self-government, and in fact, uh, it has occurred now. So we're simply just pleased with the, uh, with the support and the results that have been achieved over the past 20-plus uh, years. The, uh, the framework agreement, I guess, I mean, the purpose behind it was really to give First Nations control of their lands and resources, quote, for the use and benefit of their members. Is that what you're hearing back from the grassroots, that this has led to practical changes in community? Well, I've heard so much from communities across Canada, uh, all good. Uh, when, you're, uh, when you're a government and recognized as a government, and when you have the ability to pass your own laws without the interference of, uh, of other governments outside, federal governments, provincial governments, municipalities, uh, and, uh, and have that real governance authority, this is, uh, is something that uh, I don't think uh, communities, First Nations that have land codes are going to give back. It's the future. 
This is uh, this is what we desire. It's uh, it's our past, and you know we think of the uh, of the past. We think of uh, the uh, of the uh, colonization that took place in Canada, uh, the suppression, uh, the moving of uh, of uh, of all of the policies against First Nation peoples, uh, starting in the mid 1800s and culminating, uh, you know, into the uh, into the uh, late uh, uh, 1900s, you know. This is uh, something that we've lived with, we've faced, and uh, you know, now we see the sunshine, we see the rays of hope, and uh, this is uh, this is our future, and uh, and we're not turning back. It might be helpful for our listeners to have you talk about decolonization. We hear the term a lot, but what does that mean to you? Well, <laughs> the, the decolonization. Uh, when I uh, think of decolonization, uh, colonization. Um, you know, I I, uh, I think of the dismantlement uh, of uh, Indian affairs bureaucracy. Uh, I see the the fundamental right of self determination uh, as as our future. Um, uh, I think about uh, indigenous peoples gaining back control over our lands, uh, no longer prisoners in our own lands, and that's what we've had to live with. You know, uh, from the mid-1800s, uh, um, uh, in the earlier days, uh, we were considered an inferior people. Um, we were the colonized people, and we were made to feel inferior or less worthy by the uh, colonial government. And uh, this has changed. It has to, had to change. So land decolonized is the resurgence of indigenous people and being recognized as having the right of self-determination that includes gaining control of our lands that's what it means i touched on that in my conversation with austin bear of muscaday first nation and he had some great stories to share and uh, talking about having a little tin that still contained the old permits that his father had to get before he could take his farm produce into town to sell to support his family. And Austin seemed to get emotional about that. And, and I'm just wondering if you've had some kind of a personal connection like that, that, uh, that has spurred you on to continue this movement. Well, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, I was born uh, in 1951, so um, I'm approaching 70 uh, right now, and uh, I've seen a lot of change, uh, particularly in my community. I'm, uh, I'm Okanagan Silks. I, uh, you know, I live in the uh, southern uh, interior of British Columbia on the West Bank First Nation lands, and uh, you know, I was born on the on the lands here uh, at my uh, my homestead. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, my family have lived here for thousands and thousands of years being the first peoples of the Okanagan Valley so in my time I've uh, I've seen the the changes uh, I mean I, I believe our family if I'm not mistaken were the last family to finally get running water uh, to get electricity and that didn't take place until uh, about 1971 1972 you know, and prior to that, uh, you know, when we went to town, uh, you know, we walked. I uh, would take a horse and buggy, for example. I mean, this is in the 1950s here, uh, down to the old ferry docks, and uh, and the horse and buggy would uh, would be parked. We'd get on the ferry, and we'd uh, we'd uh, we'd go across, do our shopping, 
and uh, and then come back. And I remember uh, later on uh, when the Okanagan Lake uh, Bridge was built, we walked across the bridge. We didn't have a vehicle. We walked across that bridge uh, both ways. So people looked uh, at us uh, in a uh, derogatory way. Uh, you know, we were uh, we were considered. Uh, uh, very clearly inferior, and I saw it. Uh, you know, my grandmother saw it. But uh, we are proud people. Uh, I recall, uh, you know, the the time when my uh, grandmother uh, stood up to uh, shopkeepers and said, "This is Indian land. You know, we are the peoples of this land, uh, and we don't have to pay tax." Uh, and she was very, very clear, and she'd argue. Uh, you know, the queen is there. The queen is supposed to protect us. Uh, you know, this is what I was, uh, uh, this is what I saw. This is what, I, what, uh, what, uh, what, we, what we faced as, as people. So, you know, I've seen the change. I saw the, uh, you know, the uh, development starting to happen. People start to come in the valley and so forth. And, uh, and that suppression and, and feeling of, uh, of being inferior was, uh, was something we had to live with. So, you know, having this uh, uh, liberation now, knowing that uh, we're uh, a recognized group and entity, that we have rights that need to be protected, that this right of self-determination means that we are the decision makers. We are the people that must have control of our lands. And to see that now and to um, witness it and, and to grow up with that and, and know what we're what we've, what we've achieved now and what our future is, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's enlightening. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It, it seems like elders in most communities are filled with wisdom and their knowledge of history is really helping support a lot of new leaders coming along and understanding the value of land code and what it can do. Yes. Very much so. Um, I, uh, you know, uh, in, in the earlier days, uh, many communities uh, were, were, were afraid. Uh, you know, do you take that next step? Uh, and there was so much uh, concern at that time by many uninformed groups. Uh, and there was miscommunication. And some of it, I believe, was simply intentional. To, to scare the, uh, the, the people to say, well, look, uh, you're, you're trying to move uh, to, uh, ahead, but you're selling out. You are the sellouts. You know, I heard that so many times and it just infuriated me, absolutely infuriated me to, to no end to think that we would give up our rights as indigenous peoples, that we would sell our culture, that we would, uh, we would sell our lands. You know, that's not who we are as people. That's not how we were brought up. We're brought up uh, to recognize our culture, to, to understand our past, and to, uh, and to uh, really work hard, really, and to, and to be, uh, be the, uh, the citizens, of, citizens of the land that looked after the lands, that, uh, that you know, had the right to be here. And that right, of course, is uh, clearly protected in the Constitution of Canada. That's the framework of, the, of, uh, of, of how laws and how we as a society operate. And we're part of that and we're recognized in that. So, you know, uh, when you think of elders in the earlier times, uh, it's scary when you say, uh, you know, we, we need to have a better future and this is the way to do it. So change uh, sometimes is scary, but it has to be done. Yeah. Sometimes the familiar can be quite comfortable and something new. It just seems scary. And yeah, that's correct. That's that's the way it was. 
Uh, speaking of change, uh, I saw you talk a couple of years ago um, where you talked about a proposed new Land Governance Registration Act, something to make the legislation more concise and simpler. Uh, where does that stand now, Robert? Well, we have made our presentations to uh, to Canada. Uh, they've listened. Uh, we were very, very close, uh, we believe, uh, with the support of the bureaucrats under the various ministries of, uh, of uh, uh, Indigenous Services Canada, the Department of Indian Affairs, and uh, we thought that we were going to uh, have this uh, done, uh, this uh, this session of Parliament. Uh, right now, we're we're getting uh, towards the end of May, and uh, and it hasn't happened yet. So the likelihood uh, of uh, of having this uh, into legislative form by June. Uh, whenever uh, Parliament is to uh, to uh, rescind uh, itself, uh, probably not going to happen. So now we're going to have to look to uh, to the fall, the fall session. But it's a desire. We have clear direction from our community that the that the legislation has to be revisited, has to be focused in on the framework agreement itself, the principles behind it. And uh, to have this uh, reconciliation, and to and to know that uh, the, the the real authorities really rest with the with the First Nation peoples, and to have that reflected in the language of the legislation, that's critical and that's important. We uh, we firmly believe that's going to be achieved, and uh, we'll just have to wait uh, perhaps a little bit longer for that to occur. I wanted to talk about some of the neat things that uh, the Resource Center has been doing lately with. Um, online workshops and also there was recently a national online conversation about indigenous law enforcement that it was involved with to some extent as well COVID, of course has made a lot of us change the way we communicate do you think this is going to be a standard now in doing much more work online with communities i think that's the future uh, uh you know i i think that uh, people are getting used to working at homes for example uh, so, uh, you know, does that mean less travel across the country? Uh, perhaps it might slow down a bit. Um, you know, the uh, the enforcement uh, aspect of this is is, is very very important, uh, um, and so there's a lot to consider. I think the the, the pandemic is uh, is certainly going to change things uh, the way we uh, we we used to to operate. Uh, and I think laws need to be uh, more clearly developed uh, to recognize the, the protection of health. And when you're thinking of, uh, and when First Nations are dealing with, with health of its citizens, uh, its members, and the community at large, you know, there has to be enforcement. There has to be laws that, uh, that are recognized in the community, and that needs to, to be enforced. And we're going to need to rely as well on the RCMP and, and the pro, uh, provincial uh, police forces to assist, to recognize that, to, to be part of that. We need the courts uh, involved for prosecution and the recognition. So this is a huge mo movement that is happening right now across Canada. And, and uh, you know, we've solicited the support of the, uh, the, the ministries, the ministers uh, that are uh, associated with, uh, with uh, enforcement in Canada. And that movement has happened and is happening right now. Uh, I, in fact, uh, myself and others are involved in uh, and indigenous parliamentary matters coming up next week. And we're going to be talking about enforcement. And uh, we're going to have these continued meetings with the attorney generals of each of the provinces, uh, the justice ministers, uh, until we have uh, full um, assurance that 
Canada, that the provinces will recognize not only our laws, but help enforce those laws, uh, both in the courts and, and outside the courts. Mm. Is, it, is that also a question of funding and where communities might need additional funding to create their own police forces? Well, funding always is a is a is a big issue when you're a government. Uh, you know, uh, Canada itself looks to taxation. They look at other revenues to to create, to support, uh, and and to sustain itself in in all those respects of good governance. And First Nations are no different. Uh, we need to find the the the, the resources. Uh, you know, having the revenue generating powers within, I think, is our ultimate uh, desire and goal. So that means uh, uh, further look at uh, at how monies can be raised internally um, and that's where our government uh, are, uh, is, is going from a first nation perspective uh, I think the uh, the the edge uh, of, of support uh, maybe at the start uh, I think there can be funding and uh, Minister Lametti has uh, referred to that in our discussions with uh, with him uh, there are certain budgets that Canada has uh, and uh, perhaps some of those dollars can be uh, can be uh, uh, adjusted to to assist in uh, getting the enforcement provisions all, all underway and in place so that's our hope and uh, we hope that uh, transpires in the in the months ahead. Speaking of taxes, reminded me of the tax commission, and you do have a, a protocol or an understanding with the tax commission, the financial management board, the finance authority, and you're seemingly trying to integrate uh, these national organizations for the betterment of all. Is that working the way you intended it to work? Certainly, we have protocols uh, and agreements in place to work together. Uh, it's been slowed down because of the pandemic. Uh, there's no question about that. This is our third year of really uh, trying to move ahead in uh, uh, working collaboratively uh, together, uh, collectively, and uh, it has been difficult to have these meetings, uh, travel restrictions and everything else. So it certainly had an impact on us. Uh, it hasn't uh, impacted or dissuaded our desire to work together. We know that uh, collectively uh, we need to do this. And uh, we see the, the, the future as, uh, as a challenge uh, with the pandemic. There's no question. But the, uh, the COVID uh, situation uh, is going to subside. Uh, it's going to take time, but it will subside. Uh, you know, we believe that that's going to be the case. And hopefully every Canadian uh, believes that's going to be the case. So once it does, we're going to be speak, uh, speeding up picking up the, uh, the, uh, the pace to, to move ahead in this collaboration and to, and to uh, get uh, the movement for revenue generating capacity and all of the important things that good government needs. Okay. I brought that up because uh, on our last episode, I was speaking with Rose Paul from Buckingham Mi'kmaq Nation here in Nova Scotia, and she's been quite involved in getting connected with these national organizations. And I guess those of us out here in the East are wondering, when is the land code tidal wave going to continue moving east? Well, it has. Uh, it is moving uh, east. I mean, uh, our 100th uh, community, if we consider Quebec as being east, at least from British Columbia looking uh, eastward, uh, it is certainly east. Uh, you know, uh, it's expanding. Quebec, uh, and we've got uh, uh, successful land code communities in, uh, in uh, Nova Scotia now. Uh, Member two was the first, I think. Yes, correct. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that is correct. Uh, I mean, we're far, far away as uh, Newfoundland now. So it is happening. Uh, and, uh, and we see the surgeons uh, continuing right across Canada. Yeah. 
The one thing I noticed, uh, I mean, as a settler, I was privileged to attend a conference a couple of years ago, I think in Winnipeg. And uh, I was struck by the collaboration and the friendship among communities from coast to coast to coast. Because in the settler world, in the business world, it's all about competition, getting a leg up on the next organization or the other business. But it seemed like everybody was working in concert and somebody from Muscaday is more than happy to help a new community in New Brunswick learn about land code and its benefits. That to me was really unusual, but it's clearly working. Well, I think it is. Uh, I think uh, Indigenous peoples, I think we've uh, we've come to learn that, uh, you know, centuries of uh, internal fighting and we, we had our own internal wars for all kinds of reasons uh, because we had to. We had to protect our lands. Uh, and uh, the more recent uh, modern times, uh, you know, the, the feeling that, uh, you know, that uh, uh, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same canoe and we better paddle in that same direction. So uh, if we were together i think it's uh, it's clear that we're going to be much stronger as a people and uh, and uh, and uh, move ahead uh, at a much quicker pace so i think that's the feeling that's generated across canada it's not so much one of competition it's uh, let's support let's bring if, if someone is downtrodden or, or slower let's give a helping hand and and make sure that uh, we leave no one behind i i think that's the feeling and i like to believe that and i like to see that and i witness that that uh, when I attend these uh, sessions uh, across the country. Over time, a lot of organizations, national organizations, tend to lose their way. You know, maybe they lose their strategic direction. And I'm sure you've had your moments, but how have you held it together? And what's the secret to that? Well, the fact that uh, that uh, communities are uh, doing it ourselves, uh, uh, that this is uh, uh, Indigenous-led, uh, it's not the government saying you have to go this direction. It's us as a peoples wanting what we're seeking and working collaboratively uh, together to, to achieve that. And I think that is, is a reason and the, and the really at the crux of, uh, why things are moving ahead and, and why, uh, people don't give up. If it's something that we truly want, that our constituents, that our people are, are saying that we want a better future, let's get it. Let's get the jobs in place. Let's, uh, let's have, uh, let's have uh, our peoples uh, enjoy the niceties of life like every other uh, Canadian citizen is entitled to. And uh, it takes hard work, there's no question. But I think that's the, the vision and, and that's how we're proceeding. Can I maybe just uh, wind down with you, Robert, on, on two points? One, maybe if you'd address what you think is going to be the biggest challenge going forward, and then we'll end with what you see as being the biggest opportunity. Well, that's uh, that's a tough question. I guess the biggest challenge is, uh, I, I suppose, is, is guess, uh, getting government to move uh, quicker. Uh, I would like to say that, uh, you know, uh, a matter as simple as, uh, as enforcement, uh, it, uh, it seems simple when you're a government to say that you cannot be recognized as, as a government without the enforcement of your laws. Um, and that's a challenge getting the, uh, institutionalized, uh, uh, bureaucracy, if you will, the, uh, the entrenchment of old policies, getting them out of the way and saying, look, that's the old way. This is, uh, we're not in the 1800s now. We're not in the early 1900s. We, you know, we, we, we have rights uh, that need to move ahead. Let's move them. 
and uh, and uh, that uh, that I think is is uh, certainly a, a big challenge, and uh, and I see that uh, that's that's out there. Um, as far as uh, the pathway with land codes and land management, I think we've clearly demonstrated that we've we've uh, we offer an option for those communities who are looking at self-governance, uh, uh, looking at a, a way that their communities can proceed with with uh, government lawmaking. The option is there, so you know we've we've got 101 communities now that are operational that have passed land codes. Uh, it took us 25 years to get there. Uh, the next 100, I think, are going to take us a, a lot less time, and I think it's going to uh, it's going to speed up. And uh, and and that, of course, requires government support as well, as long as governments understand, and I think they do, uh, and because I think all of the uh, all of the studies that have that have been done to to, to look at the operational community to say, is it working? Does it really help the communities and the answer is uh, overwhelming yes yes it has uh, communities are moving ahead at a much faster pace uh, uh, and governance is uh, is really at the crux of it having the inherent right to, to manage one's own lands the community uh, uh, giving the direction that you, you don't have to hide behind the uh, the uh, the uh, vacuums of the Indian Act you've got to take charge as a community and that means working together. It means saying that, okay, it's hard work. There's no question about it. But, uh, you know, that's, that's where people are going and that's where communities are going. And that's, uh, that's the beauty of what I see is happening uh, across Canada right now. I still see that image of your feisty grandmother and that story you shared back in the beginning. Do you think she'd be proud of where you're at? My grandmother in particular, uh, I'll tell you another story. It just came to mind too. I was a young boy there. I, I don't know how I probably was uh, maybe three years old, uh, but I do recall it vividly. We didn't have electricity, as, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, we had, uh, we had uh, uh, coolers that were uh, attached to the outside of the house, and we had a huge bear that, that was hungry, came up and was standing up uh, trying to swat and reach the cooler, and my grandmother came out, uh, saw it, and I was uh, hanging on to her skirt, and uh, we walked out there. She grabbed uh, uh, a big pan and a big wooden spoon and walked right up to that bear with me in tow, and we were within a, within a few feet of this huge bear, and she wouldn't back down, and uh, she was uh, speaking in our in our Okanagan Silks language uh, at this bear. The bear looked, and it finally uh, uh, went down on its all fours, and it slowly sauntered away. But that was a power. That was uh, that told me something right there. It uh, it gave me uh, it gave me uh, uh, something uh, that I haven't forgotten to this day. That if my grandmother can stand up to this huge bear and not be afraid, then I can't be afraid as well. And so when we're talking about moving ahead with, uh, with governance and so forth, you can never be afraid of that. A great way to end the episode. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Richard. Uh, you've uh, rekindled uh, some of my old, uh, my old thoughts and some of my old history. So it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a wonderful feeling. So thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Robert. For more information on the Framework Agreement or the Land Code process, visit labrc.com. You'll see videos celebrating the 25th anniversary of the agreement and also some contact information to help your own community learn more. To our listeners, thank you for keeping us up there in the Apple Podcast ratings. 
If I could ask one favor, just share this episode with one colleague this week and help share our Land Code success stories. I'm Richard Perry. Thanks for listening.